You are now tuning in to part two of our absolutely incredible conversation about the Beatles with the legendary Rob Sheffield. If you have not checked out part one yet, I recommend you listen to that first. And just a fair warning to you, this may be our best episode yet. In this episode, we enter a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of a man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Beatle Zone. Is George your favorite Beatle? I've had to confront this question. I avoid this question all the time. Honestly, uh, it's Paul. I'm a Paul boy. I'm, really? Yes. I've always been a Paul boy. Um. I, I have my personal connections with all four of them. And of course I think of them all as my favorite Beatle, but I've, I've realized as I've gotten older, just the weirdness of Paul McCartney is something that, you know, because he's the most famous person in the world and arguably the most beloved human being on earth, mm -hmm. um, his only real competition being Ringo, I guess. Um, but they're, you know, the two most beloved people on earth. And, you know, you think of the competition and it's like, no, the competition is really provincial compared, but that Paul McCartney is just so profoundly weird. It's weird that he keeps doing this, that he is, you know, he's going to turn 80 on the road somewhere playing yeah. for four hours until people are carried out on stretchers. And Paul is like, what? <laughs> people want to leave? I want to stay. He hates to leave the stage. He hates it. He has to be dragged off for the encore. And every single time I've seen him, I'm sure you've noticed the same thing. Every time he comes back for the encore, he's running. He's never yeah. not running back for the encore. He did it as, you know, like in the 60s shows. He he does it in the in, in the 70s shows. He runs back for the encore. He hates being, he hates leaving the stage. It's yeah. crazy. And you know, that there's really, I mean, there's not any kind of precedent for somebody doing that who's still at the absolute top of their game, the way he is as an absolutely like top of the game live performer. All these contemporary artists hoping to retire at 65 are like, oh my gosh, he's making me look bad right now. Uh, yes, unbelievable. And and that he is also 80 and so open to new influences, so open to new music, and so focused on what he's doing next, you know, rather than resting on his laurels. You know, he will talk about the old songs when people want to talk about the old songs. He, you know, as as he told Rick Rubin, he's like, I'm, I'm as big a, a Beatles geek as anyone, you know? Um, but you know, he's what he's really excited about is the music he's making today and tomorrow. And, you know, even if those albums weren't great, I would love, you know, that sort of side of him that those records bring out. But like you listen to an album like Egypt Station and, and you know, there's there's lesser stuff. There's really good stuff. And then there's like completely phenomenal stuff like Dominoes, which, you know, to me is a top five solo Paul song. Like catch me in the right mood. You know, if I'd maybe had a cocktail or two. Like I'd be arguing that's a top five Paul song period, but like there's certainly no precedent for any rock star, any, any really working musician in their late seventies to write a song as good as Domino's. And nobody even knows that song. It's just an album track. Right. <laughs> it's a deep cut. And I feel like these are songs we're going to keep discovering for the rest of our lives and going like, you know, like this temporary secretary effect. Like it's so funny that yeah. Temporary Secretary came out and nobody noticed it for 30 years. The song was always yeah. there and like just nobody noticed it. And then sort of collectively people were like, oh, wow, Temporary Secretary is this phenomenal, great, like new wave 1980 song that happens to be by Paul McCartney. And, you know, people, it took people 30 years to discover that song. And I feel like 
you know, we're still going to be catching up with these songs and still catching up with aspects of his personality. Like the, the, the way he's always written songs about women, which is something that has always been ahead of his time and something mm-hmm. that, you know, when I interviewed him last year and, and I, I, I guess felt adventurous enough to, to press him on this a bit, but I was like, you were writing songs about women in 1965 and you were talking about their ideas and what they had to say. And, you know, the, the, the nurse in Penny Lane, you know, you're talking about she's picturing, she's imagining that she's in a play. You're talking about her imagination. You know, you don't tell us what she's wearing or, you know, what she looks like, who she reminds you of. Like that's, you know, you're telling about what's going on in her head and the way that he empathizes with these female characters in his songs, you know, drive my car. I asked a girl what I wanted, what she wanted to be, which is, you know, a very strange Mm. question when you think about it to be asking girls in 1965 when, you know, at the time that Rubber Soul came out, my mom was pregnant with me and she got fired for getting pregnant with me because she was a school teacher. And, you know, the whole thing of like a, a pregnant woman, like having a job was just, unheard of she was going to be a mom so she was fired for being pregnant and that was just how things were done back then and you know that the the songs you know policing about women with jobs you know in the 60s a song i love that i i asked him a bit about because i always wanted to hear him talk about it is, is another day which is another great paul song that people forget about yeah and it was his first solo single after leaving yeah. the beatles and and it's this song about this, you know, woman who has a job and she's single. She's on her own in the city. She's living her life. It's like it's completely out of whack with any song that any male songwriter was writing about women in 1970. And I feel like that's an aspect of Paul that, you know, we're still just kind of sort of slowly waking up to. Yes. And he continues to be progressive as well. I mean, just the other year, he said about the song Laboratory Lil from his McCartney 3 album that that was actually about Polythene Pam's girlfriend. So you're right. He's always creating women characters from an empathetic point of view. So one of my like fun, like late night arguments to have with some of my Beatles friends is we try to brainstorm Paul McCartney songs about men, like, and like his, his lack of interest in, huh. in men as a topic to write about or sing about, or even think about, you could tell Paul McCartney basically does not really care about men. <laughs> and that yeah. any Paul McCartney songs, like, it's funny that the only one you can think of where there's like a conversation between men is banned on the run when they're breaking right. out of jail. And the guy's like, the first one said to the second one there, I hope you're having fun. I'm like, I think, I think this, the jailer man and sailor Sam might be the closest he comes to creating male characters in a song. Yeah. But ultimately he does not care about men. And if there's a Paul McCartney song about a man, they're talking about a woman. So like, Hey Jude is, you know, his most famous song. It's the Beatles biggest hit. It's, you know, it's one of the greatest songs ever written. And it's a man talking to another man. And what are they talking about? What else would Paul McCartney talk about? He's giving Jude, he's talking to Jude about this woman and like encouraging him to, you know, let this woman into his life. It's like really amazing that Paul has consistently through his career, you know, coming on, you know, 55 years has written about women in this like really curious, intense way and just does not care about, does not care about men at all. And it's funny that that's, really like kind of i mean and and you try to think about paul songs where he sings about men sometimes he sings about them and he's angry about them you know he's complaining about you know too many people or whatever but you know he he, paul just he does not care about men the only other one i could think of is father mckenzie burying (laughs) yeah totally eleanor rigby (laughs) totally yes yes of course she gets the last word yes it's like her grave yes and totally defines him and he has no idea like it's 
And it's really kind of amazing that he was singing those songs. And he wrote Eleanor Rigby when he's 24. And it's something that, you know, try to imagine like when you're 24 and you're Paul McCartney and you're the biggest pop star that's ever existed. And you could make a fair case that nobody in the history in the, hu- in the human race had been as famous as Paul McCartney was, you know, in 1965, 66. Mm-hmm. And he's got, you know, swinging London. The world is changing in ways that he helped usher in. And he certainly got a lot of distractions at his door. Lots of hedonism, lots of like intellectual pursuits as well as hedonistic pursuits. But certainly there's a lot of other ways he could spend his time other than writing a song about Eleanor Rigby and trying to imagine what her life is like and that he did this in a way that still resonates with people, you know, probably like you. I loved that song as a little kid and I love it now as, you know, no longer a particularly young adult. And it is mind blowing to me that he got that right and that he took the time to get that right. And that he put the effort into getting that right. He wanted to tell her story, not his story about like, you know, there isn't a, you know, hero Paul McCartney figure who's, you know, I guess virtue signaling is the way we'd put it now, but like, he's not a character in the song cheering up Eleanor Rigby. He's just, you know, he's just reporting on her life from what he can observe, what he can imagine. And it's just really astounding that he was doing songs like that when he was 24 and that he's kept that tradition alive his entire career. And like John, and it's funny that this is something that he and John kind of had in common because John would write songs where he was like, complaining to men or or lecturing at them you know but like yeah basically john you know is something it's a weird kind of theme in john's songwriting especially in his lyrics and the early part of the beatles career where he's he's always worried what men are thinking of him he's worried that men are like laughing at him or putting him down or thinking he's a fool you know he wants them to be envious he wants to impress them that's like a theme in in his songwriting at this point but certainly paul doesn't do something like that you know like um you can tell the one song where Paul really tries to write that kind of song is another girl. And it's just, yeah. well, wow, he just <laughs> does not care enough. He like, he, he just threw in the towel halfway through with that song. He just, yeah. he just could not relate to that perspective. So it's, it's like, he's trying to write a really, you know, like macho misogynistic womanizing song. And he just, he just loses interest, you know, after, yeah. after basically halfway through the first verse, like even in the chorus, he's like, Oh, another girl. He's like, he is not interested in finishing this song. Yeah, <laughs> it's just there because they needed something to fill out help. And it's so funny that this is he he really tried to write this kind of misogynistic song and just couldn't relate to it, even when he was trying to write it. Well, I think it's fascinating that the only title that's shared between two songs that Paul and John wrote separately is Woman. John had a song Woman in, of course, on Double Fantasy. And Paul, I believe he wrote that in 66 and gave it to, I want to say Peter and Gordon, but I could be wrong. It's so fascinating. I never thought yeah. of that. I think, yeah, it was Peter and Gordon. And it's wild. I guess I never put those two songs together. That's really incredible. Yeah. That's, so that's, that's wild that that's their one shared song title. Yeah. And even in the early days, uh, you know, exactly like you were saying, they were writing songs. She loves you. Thank you, girl. I want to hold your hand. It's all about the girl. Well, uh, yeah. And, and that they were keen to make it very explicit that it's a two-way dialogue. I always loved, you know, that fantastic quote to Mark Lewison in, in the Beatles recording sessions book in, in 87, where he said, you know, like the thing with the pronouns, you know, that we we're putting in our songs, you know, she loves, she loves you, please, please me from me to you, that thank you, girl, that, you know, we were boys who were like, 
you know, 18 or 19, and we're singing to an audience of girls who are 16, 17. So, you know, we're speaking to them directly and that we know that they're the ones that are listening and they're the ones that we're writing to impress. And, you know, and, and uh, he, he, he says this like in a really blunt way, but, you know, like a lot of what the Beatles did and a lot of like the sort of, I mean, shocking in retrospect, and I guess also shocking at the time, but the emotional candor and honesty and non-condescendingness that they brought to those songs that was so palpable to their audience at the time, but it very much comes, you know, all the songs that they would write, like their entire careers separately and together, they they come from that challenge of writing songs to these girls that they were, you know, singing to face to face in rooms like the cavern and, you know, and just speaking directly to them and plainly to them. And it's, it's really kind of astonishing that that was the challenge. And that's, it's it it you can hear that in everything they did the rest of their careers that set the tone for the kind of honesty that they that all four of them like aspired to to achieve in their in their work you know together or alone and also i mean just like a fact of pop history you know then or now teenage girls are the the most sophisticated audience they're the hardest audience to impress they're the hardest audience to con you cannot mm-hmm. fool the teenage girls yeah. that's something that you know I think that's a huge part of what keeps pop music fresh, at least for me, is that like the teenage girls, they are tough. They do not have legacy artists. They will not fake it for an artist. Like they can really tell when they're being condescended to. They can tell when somebody's trying to like sell them something phony and they do not fall for it. And, you know, they, they do not fall for, you know, they do not fall for phoniness in ways that other pop audiences can maybe be be fooled or maybe be, you know, conned. And teenage girls are always historically they're the most sophisticated audience. And that's why they're always on the coolest thing before anybody else is. And, you know, that's why the Beatles, like, I think, really like respected the challenge of writing for them because they knew that keeping these girls respect was the hardest artistic challenge that they'd ever face. And they always wrote song for those girls as those girls turned into women. And look at it, I'm like rubber soul. And it's just kind of, you know, I feel like rubber soul is like, like a lot of stuff that we've been talking about in this conversation, like really famous album that just gets weirder when you listen to it and think like, these are boys who become men and they're writing songs about girls who become women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't really have to keep rising to the challenge. They could have kept writing, you know, songs about teenage girls, but in Rubber Soul, they're singing right. about girls who have jobs, girls who have to get up in the morning because they have to go to work, girls who have stories, girls who have careers and ambitions, you know, even if it's just to be a star, um, girls who have philosophies of life, you know, and girls who even speak languages they don't speak, like Michelle, which is a song that I loved when I was a little boy, then I hated Michelle when I was a teenager, and I hated it for most of my life. And it's really only the last 10 years that I've been like, Wow, Michelle is a great song. How did I not notice how brilliant Michelle was? I was like, God, has it come to that? You know, but <laughs> we all have those moments with Beatles songs. Part of being yeah. a Beatles fan, you, you dislike a song for years, you you know, or you stop paying attention to it. And then it's like, wow, I've been underrating Michelle all these years. That's like yeah. a nutso song. Like, who else was writing songs in 1965, like on on that level of, you know, of, of just pure candor and just condescend, you know, non-condescension. And I think like that experience of writing for those teen girl fans in the early sixties, I think that's what toughened the Beatles for the songs that they would write all through the sixties and seventies and through their careers. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think a good example is she's leaving home. I think a lot of teenage girls during the counterculture movement probably related to that song 
like fighting with their parents or threatening to run away. And it's another great example yes. of Paul writing from that third person point of yes. view. I guess what strikes me about this song, it's funny, that's the song I always found so threatening as a little kid. And I've never really like, you know, made the crossover to actually liking, liking that song. Cause like, I, I, oh, really? I take the parents' side. And I did when I was a little kid. <laughs> I was like, they make some good points here. I, I, I took the parents' side. I was like, that girl's an idiot. She'll be home in a week. I guess like, <laughs> like the real life Melanie Co, she was home in, in a couple of weeks. Right. Um, you know, like she, she, she did go back. Like, you know, like man from the motor trade. Yeah. You don't want to hang out with that guy. That's, right. that's, yeah. that's, that's not the guy you want to like, you don't want to put your eggs in that basket. I think part of, I mean, part of what I love about Sergeant Pepper even more than other Beatles albums, more and more, is the empathy toward old people. And that's a, a really funny and underrated aspect of the Beatles games that, you know, hmm. they were writing songs about old people. It wasn't with the kind of contempt that, you know, Dylan or the Stones or, you know, the Velvet Underground or whoever were bringing to songs about old people, um, that they always had that empathy for them. And, you know, you can hear that in, in She's Leaving Home, where, you know, they do it as a dialogue, where like Paul is singing the girl's story, John is sitting and they recorded the vocals together in the studio, according to Jeff Emmerich's book. And they're sitting facing each other in the studio on stools and singing at the same time. And John is just singing things that are like literally verbatim what Auntie Mimi would say when they would fight. Never a thought for ourselves. We sacrificed all our lives to get by. She, we never thought of ourselves. She's leaving. Never a thought for ourselves. And all these, you know, kind of like stereotypical, like old stiff upper lip English, old people songs to sing. But, you know, right. you think about Sgt. Pepper in the way that Fred Astaire is on the cover, right? And uh -huh. like Mae West is on the cover. These are old people icons. And this is, you know, the Beatles making their big youth statement, but they're very self-consciously and very, I think, confrontationally wanting to open it up to young people, to old people, excuse me, in a way that is challenging to young people. And... Mm. That the, you know that they had clearly they had songs like Eleanor Rigby, and you know and when I'm 64 to sort of express that sympathy, but that must have been so challenging to their young radical audience at the time. I mean, this is 1967, right? The summer of love, and you know this is the era of the Doors going, you know, Father, yes, son, I want to kill you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was very much you know younger ver generation versus older generation. And, you know, here, like, it's Paul McCartney, but the rest of the Beatles signing on, they're putting Fred Astaire on their album cover. And, you know, Paul always said Fred Astaire was a big influence on his songwriting, a big influence on, on his artistic stance. But, you know, songs like Here, There, and Everywhere, he was thinking specifically of, like, you know, Fred Astaire singing Cheek to Cheek, you know, and, right. and, and, and an old, you know, Fred and Ginger movie. And that's that's, you know, the kind of thing that you think, you know, like, that's certainly something that, you know, certainly must have been shocking at the time. It's certainly shocking to hear that now. But that's something I love about She's Leaving Home is that sort of, you know, that they let the old folks get their dialogue in. And, and me yeah. personally, I always sympathize with the parents. <laughs> I was always like, yeah, that's a really, that's a lame way to leave home. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be back. She'll be back. <laughs> they should have made a sequel. They absolutely should have. Hopefully, I would love a sequel on that 80s album with just Star Wars sounds and just really cheesy 80s jack now i'm completely obsessed with this idea of this like john lennon star wars you know, he would have done yeah. like a 
like cantina band version of Scarberry Fields Forever kind of thing. I would, think you would have loved that. Yes, it would have been like Carnival of Light times, you know, like Jabba the Hutt's <laughs> ska band, you know, like uh, it would have been some like sort of interstellar sort of vaudeville. It would have been it would have been awesome. But but it is, you know, in terms of the Star Wars thing, I'd love that because the Beatles, that they were open to everything and they would, you know, absolutely take the risk of humiliating themselves. Yeah. But, like, it's really weird that none of them were on the Muppet show. And yeah. I feel like that's something that, you know, if the Muppet show had kept going and the Beatles had gotten back together, I feel like that would have been, you know, that could have been an extra Muppet movie. You know, they would have, again, they go to got high one night and called Jim Henson and said, <laughs> we've got a great idea. Right. Get the Muppets <laughs> together for another movie. You know, it's going to be, we're going to return to Neverland and fight the Blue Moonies with right. you know, Gonzo and Kermit and Piggy. <laughs> you know, they, they were into stuff like that. Yeah, and it would have been great too, I think. Um, would have been great, and also they'd spent their set. The you know the nineteen seventies, all four of the Beatles were really weirded out that the Beatles were still so popular, right? They constantly yeah. complained about it in their interviews. Great, like mid seventies Ringo interview, like with I think I think it's with Ray Conley and the NME, but uh-huh. he's talking about you know the Beatles rock and roll music compilation and. You know, the way the Beatles legacy has been treated badly by the record mm. company and everything. Like, and then the last sentence of the interview is like, Ringo's like, oh, wait a minute. I realized like, we haven't talked at all about my new record. <laughs> it's such a great kicker for the interview. Cause of course, like, it's like last, oh yeah. I've, Ringo's Roto Gravor. Run right. out to your local record shops and buy it. <laughs> um, you know, it's a thing where like, they found it really oppressive that the world wanted to keep talking about the Beatles. I feel like in the eighties, they all would have like made their peace with it as, as you know, the surviving ones did, um, you know, even if they had lots and lots of, you know, petty, silly, stupid drama with each other um, through those years. I, I, I feel like, you know, the wave of love that people had for the Beatles in a sincere, not hyped way that they, mm-hmm. they would have respected that they were showmen enough to respect that. I think another really fascinating thing that unfortunately never came to fruition was the fact that uh, John Lennon, right before his death, said he wanted to re-record all of the Beatles songs to George Martin. And of course, George Martin was heartbroken by that. <laughs> yeah. um, he was like, what do you mean? Yes. Those are my, that's my best work. Yes. Um, but John didn't think they were recorded properly, or I think he just thought that it could have been a lot better. And I don't know if that was his perfectionism or if he actually meant it. But I also would have really loved to hear like, you know, like a Strawberry Fields Forever John's version, you know. Yeah, to, absolutely. Uh, yes. Really <laughs> <laughs> yes. It could have gone four versions of the White Album where each side is another one like. Yeah. Making it. But I, but it's weird. Like, I, you know, and, and that's funny. Like. I wonder how much of that was also him just you know wanting to say something to hurt George Martin's feelings. Yeah. Like, yeah. Obviously he knew how to do very well. Um, but it's something like, it's funny that that's something that they all, you know, they all fled in the seventies and that they all like found really oppressive. And, you know, it was weird that they would allow themselves to be touched by it in weird ways. Um, mm-hmm. Something I write about in the book, I, I'm, I'm sure that this is a moment that you cherish too, but it's when, you know, it's, 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 when he goes back on stage with Elton John and John Lennon has the bet with Elton John about their duet, whatever gets you through the night. 
and it hits number one. So John has to pay off on the bet, which is to appear to sing it with Elton John on stage at Madison Square Garden, which John mm-hmm. is terrified of doing. And they do two songs and they do, well, no, no, well, no they do Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds because that was another one that Elton covered. And then they do Whatever Gets You Through the Night. And then, and then they do I Saw Her Standing There and, and John says, we want to do one more number. It's by an old estranged fiance of mine named Paul. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so beautiful in that moment that, you know, he is so like bewildered by this wave of love that is you know being bombarded at him by this, you know, incredibly happy crowd in Madison Square Garden who just want to shower him with love. And his just gut instinct is just to share this with Paul. It's like an un- just incredibly beautiful moment. Also, mm-hmm. n- nobody at that point knew who wrote which Beatles song. Like, like that was way before it, you know, like most people didn't even know that Lennon McCartney didn't write half their songs 50-50 in those days. That was something right. only like sophisticates and, and journalists knew. Like, so right. it, it was something that like for him to like say, we're going to do basically one of Paul's songs and I do this and, and you know, to invoke Paul by name, like what an incredibly weird and generous and sweet and vulnerable moment that is. And John is like, you know, he, he says, overtly, he's like, I got to go backstage because I'm, I'm about to be sick. You know, he's terrified. He's bewildered. You know, in some ways he's mad. He's like, why is this happening for these old songs and not, you know, like my songs on walls, walls and bridges, but, right. but he's just like, he's completely like in awe of this love that the Beatles have conjured up. You know, and very, very amazing. It's kind of like his tone on, on the rooftop scenes and get back where you could tell he's really like, and you could really see it when you're watching the movie. It's like, wow, he's really like getting out of hand. He's really carried up in the moment. And mm-hmm. like he gets happier and happier as as the rooftops it goes. And when he goes over and just yells, peace on earth to the people below. And yeah. you know, this is John who was like trying to sabotage things early on. Like <laughs> it's really amazing that he's just, he's like all four Beatles, something they hadn't come. They were in awe of this audience that they had conjured up and the love that was being bombarded at them. And they found it oppressive sometimes. They tried to escape it. They tried to deny it. They tried to put it down. But you know, John on stage at Madison Square Garden, Thanksgiving, 1974. He's just nothing but overwhelmed by all this love coming from the crowd. And all he wants to do is is share it with Paul. Just an unbelievably yeah. beautiful moment. Yeah. And what's also beautiful about that is that that was the, I believe that was the night of his reunion with Yoko. Yeah. After they haven't seen each other in a really long time. I know, Yoko's backstage. It's just incredibly yeah. beautiful. And, you know, it's it's but little kids i mean i was a little kid you know i'm old enough to remember being a little kid when john and yoko when john was still alive which is you know a real like before and after in terms of like i remember like when john was still alive and and uh and the idea that he and yoko had broken up for two years you know like this certainly you know this wasn't something i knew at the time it was only when they got to back together and made jokes about it our separation didn't work out but (laughs) that this was like something that brought them together was you know was was that he was on stage being forced against his will to do these Beatles songs and and this new song with, you know, Elton John, number one Beatles fan, and just sort of admit that he was so loved, something he found so difficult to admit and accept. And it's weird that we can see so many examples of that in Get Back. I always think of this scene, I bet you love this scene too, where Paul is playing Sabre Fields Forever on the piano and like John is like literally facing away from him because he doesn't want Paul to see his face. And he's just doodling on guitar, but he's like actually got his face turned away and almost buried in his lap over his guitar because he he does not want Paul to see. Like, and he wants to totally pretend this is no big deal to him. And Yoko is sitting right next to him and she's going through her green bag looking for something, like looking Mm -hmm. for something. She's just like, she's just like pretending to rummage through her green bag because she doesn't want to interrupt this moment. 
it's like oh. really beautiful what's going on with all three of them that you know paul is playing the song he knows it means a lot to john that he's mm-hmm. playing the song and putting his own paul spin on it john is like totally in denial and yoko is letting john hide by pretending to look for something in her green bag which has nothing in it she's not fooling anyone none of them are fooling anyone incredibly beautiful defenseless moment and that's yeah there were so many of those that they brought out in each other and that that they share with each other that sort of the world forced them to accept yeah i think a really another another cool moment is in the 90s i i believe paul was on tour I, he was somewhere in england i don't know if it was liverpool or not but he did a john lennon tribute in concert and he performed three john lennon songs um have you seen this no i haven't he, he did he did help he did like a slow ballad of help right in a segue into strawberry fields forever and which segues into give peace a chance for like five minutes long and the whole crowd is singing and it's so cool and it gets you so emotional because that's just paul just saying forget about my songs and which is something i I would love to see him do in concert again but it's like this is my friend and i'm gonna play his songs because i love them too i'm a fan and i'm a friend i love that I just love that. And I love how like, you know, the world kind of forced them to accept that, whatever personal issues that they pretended, you know, like they pretended to care a lot about, but you know, the, yeah. you know, the world kind of forced them to accept how loved they were, which was really hard for them to accept and how loved they were by the world, but also how loved they were by each other. But I love that Paul could do that and, you know, in a way communicate more directly with John than, you know, he could have face to face. There's yeah. you know, all those like performances, really poignant performances on George's big solo tour, um, you know, in, in 1974, which was obviously not a success. Uh, yeah. Where he's doing In My Life every night. Like, mm-hmm. and he's really trying to do this as his tribute to, you know, to John and Paul. And, um, and like after, after the song, like, and it, it's really weird to hear like all the different bootleg versions from like each stop on the tour. And, you know, and, and to hear the sort of like fans like really trying to get with it and he's really trying to sing it even though it's hard. Like and Billy Preston really like being like absolute mention, like holding it together for the organ solo. And at the end, you know, you know, George always says something like, Oh, that's for John, because I love him and Paul and Ringo and you know, and sometimes, you know, for the ex wives and Yeah, but it, he's always like he's acknowledging the shared history in a way that's obviously very painful for him and very difficult yeah. for him physically as well as as emotionally. And yeah, but that was something that the world sort of forced them to accept. Do you think that their memories of the Beatles were ruined by the media's portrayal of how the Beatles broke up? Well, that's really interesting, and it was really interesting what um, George, you know, like. George was always like, after the fact, George was really negative about those sessions, particularly. Um, George was someone who was capable of like doing a lot of complaining about the Beatles after the Beatles broke up. Um, and like John complained about those sessions after the fact. I think, you know, it was really, I guess, moving to see how um, Paul and Ringo talked about those sessions and how their um, memories of them and their ideas of them had changed, you know, in recent years. Um, and sort of like also just like listening to the music. It's funny that the uh you know that that let it be extended deluxe version that came out last summer right before the movie kind of overshadowed by the movie in many ways but it was uh 
it was something where, you know, like you could hear, like they were having fun in these sessions. And I think like going back through these archives certainly like kind of made them reckon with the fact that, you know, that they were still making brilliant music together. It's funny. I don't know about you when um, Mm -hmm. the white album deluxe edition was about to come out and Paul was saying all this stuff like, you know, like people were saying, you know, we were fighting, but, you know, we still loved each other. We were still having fun. And I, mm. at least, I, I can admit, I did some internal eye rolling at that. I was like, oh, this is Paul being, you know, like, you know, putting a good, you know, a good face on it, you know, putting like a positive spin on it. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is Paul wanting to look for the bright side in that. And like, and, you know, I kind of, I thought maybe he was exaggerating. And then like actually listening to those outtakes and I'm like, holy crap, there's a version of Good Night where all four Beatles are singing yes. harmony. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, this happened? And yeah. we never found out about it for 50 years? Yeah. That's when I was actually listening to that in Abbey Road because I was writing about that box set before it came out and sitting you know, in, in Abbey Road and like Giles Martin was playing it. And I just remember hearing that and just kind of staring out the window and like my jaw was probably literally hanging open. I was like, everything I thought I knew about this era is completely wrong, which means everything I thought yep. I knew about the end of the Beatles is totally wrong. Yeah. I mean, and it was really tough for me. I mean, especially having just written a book about the Beatles that I was like, this completely changes, you know, so and so much of that White Album stuff where they're having so much fun together. Like when there's that take of John doing Julia, just the acoustic demo. And yeah. he talks to Paul and yes. you realize Paul is in the room when he's singing Julia. Yeah. Completely blows my mind and completely uh-huh. trashes my entire worldview. I mean, something I something something that was believed at that time that I, I certainly wrote in the book was that you know, Julia is the only song on the white Julia is the only song in the Beatles' whole career that's just John. No other mm-hmm. Beatles there. And Martha, my dear, is just Paul and you know, and he's playing the instruments and there's the horn players. Martha is all Paul. Julia is all John. Right. I was like, no, actually, you know, there were other Beatles in the room and they recorded both those songs. At least John did a, the demo of Julia with Paul in the room, which is honestly shocking enough that he was able to go to that place of honesty with Paul at, you know, standing right over his shoulder. And this is late 1968 when they're supposed to hate each other. And, and yeah. so, supposed I, to. yes. Yeah. So I was like, wow. Right. So I was like, well, Paul, anything I thought about you putting a positive spin on things, I apologize because you were right. You know, all this stuff was, and you know, and th- right up until I heard it, I thought, you know, well, of course, Paul is going to say this. We were still having fun at that point. And mm-hmm. something about the Beatles that people really do underestimate is how close they were because, you know, other pop groups just haven't been that close, but that they were even more close in 65 than they were previously. And they were even closer in 66 and even closer in 67 than they'd ever been. And that's, I mean, it's completely weird that they just got closer and closer together to the point where in 66, 67, they want to spend all their free time with the other Beatles and they just don't want to hang out with other people. Yeah. As John said, most other people just don't get through to us. Yeah, I, I think that's really, really uh, a beautiful fact about them. And also the media has been trying to put a spin that the Beatles have been breaking up since like 1965. There, you know, every time the Beatles go go on separate vacations, there's always a news. There was always a newspaper saying, "Have the Beatles broken up?" John Lennon cuts his hair. 
is this the end of the Beatles? There's all those interviews of them walking into EMI Studios in December 1966. And, you know, the the media reporters are like, is this the end of the Beatles? Are you... <laughs> And they're like, no, no, not at all. Do you think that in the new year that you're going to be going your own ways instead of being no, a group? No, no. No? No, definitely not. What about another word? But yeah, no, I think, I think you're right there. And I think that's why they're everlasting, because maybe other groups only last as long as they were close to each other. And yeah. for the Beatles, maybe that's why they're infinite because they were as close as four people can get yes and also and this is you know this is just my my personal feeling but i feel like the beatles and their music they gave us the audience the community um they gave us the emotional tools to put the band back together in a very real way that the beatles because their songs are so full of emotion and so um that their songs are so alive and so emotional that they really, they give us the toolkit to sort of build our own ongoing living versions of the Beatles, even after John died, you know, and, and, and again, like even after the Beatles broke up yes. and people were fantasizing about them getting it together, but the songs still allowed us to put them back together. The beautiful scene in the Richard Linklater movie, Boyhood, where Ethan Hawke makes that you know mix for his son of like, the Beatles solo songs, he's like, basically, I've put the band back together for you. And that's something that yeah. all fans have done. You know, like we've all imagined the album the Beatles would have made in 71, the album they would have made in 73, the album they would have made in 75. And, you know, that, but because their songs, you know, tap so deeply into human feeling that those songs really make it, they, they really make you as a listener, they fully equip you as a listener to keep the band alive. And yeah. that we as a community kept them alive after they broke up and after, you know, two of the members died. To me, that's, you know, the most fascinating and the most amazing thing about the Beatles story, which is that the audience, which in their case is the world, has kept them alive. Even your nephew rebuilt the Beatles with the, the Lego set. And and his nephew will be explaining to him who the Beatles are. Yeah. You know, my niece was like playing guitar, you know, like my teenage niece taking guitar lessons. She's like, check this one out. She plays me Blackbird. I'm like, wow, yeah, great song. I, I yeah, this is a good one. Um, <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody yeah. needed to sell her, and also nobody needed to explain historical significance of the song to her. She heard it. It spoke to her. It spoke to her soul. You know, right? You, you don't sell a teenage girl on anything. They are, like I said, they have, they have the bullshit detector that no other audience has. That's yeah. why they're the audience that, you know, I. I most deeply respect of, of all the pop audiences in the world. They are the ones that you just can't con. And she heard something in Blackbird that spoke to people at the time. It speaks to me. It speaks to her. And you don't need to bring any sort of historical or sociological baggage in. And it's funny that right. for a long time, people thought that the Beatles were, a, you know, well, you had to live through the 60s to really understand them kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it was really only in the 90s, you know, but like all through the 80s, people said, well, we hope kids today can still understand and appreciate the Beatles. And you know, you know, for those of us who were kids at the time, it was like, um, we actually think we get them better than you do. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like kids now are hearing things in the Beatles on a much more sophisticated level than I am hearing. So you know, it's funny, when I wrote this book, when you write a book about the Beatles and people are like, another book about the Beatles? And 
my my answer and my sincere feeling is the best book the best books about the Beatles have yet to be written. The best books about the Beatles are going to be written by people who are just hearing them for the first time now, and people who are just discovering them now. I feel like it's not just that, and you can't even say that people keep rediscovering the Beatles because people keep hearing deep things in them that you know the audience wasn't hearing before. It's kind of like yeah. you know how you know the 19th century could see things in Shakespeare that the 16th century couldn't see. And, you know, I feel like we can read things in Shakespeare now that the 19th century couldn't see. And, you know, certainly nobody now would say, well, you know, if you haven't been through the Guy Fox plot, you can't really appreciate, you know, the, how, how intense <laughs> King Lear is. You know, like nobody would say something like that. You know, like you have to really understand the history of the Prince of Denmark to understand, you know, like, Hamlet. like you know, for the vast majority of human beings who've lived their whole lives and have connected to those stories, they don't know or care anything about the historical background of Shakespeare or the historical background of those stories. Right. Um, those are stories that just speak to our souls. And I think, you know, the Beatles are on that same, that same level. And, you know, like the way Blackbird speaks, you know, just that tune speaks to a little kid now or speaks to an old person now or speaks to, you know, you know, people from different generations, different cultures, different languages, different parts of the world, you know, different, uh, different personality types. It's, you know, that's something that is weird about the Beatles and certainly beyond what they would have predicted. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny, like, you know, that that's something that, you know, even in the seventies, they were like, how is this still going on? How are <laughs> yeah. people still asking about songs I wrote when I was 22? Why aren't you asking about, you know, I, I, I love like when, Rolling Stone was doing that interview with John in the mid seventies. And yeah, you know, again, they're not really asking about his new songs. And he's like, right. Oh, you know, everything I do is going to be compared with Paul. You know, like if I took a ballet dancing, they compare my ballet dancing <laughs> to Paul's bowling. And you know, that's something that they learned to have a sense of humor about and accept as time went on. Um, but you know, in a way, you know, the band outlived them and, and I feel like they did get to see that and they did get to experience that and wonder at that and just be sort of, impressed by the the beautiful spiritual weirdness of that and that you know that's what i hear in a moment like you know the moment you described that incredibly beautiful moment of paul doing give peace a chance live for 15 minutes or you know yeah. george trying and failing to sing in my life but dedicating it to his old friends and having billy preston play the organ solo and you know john doing i saw her standing there on stage for his old estranged fiance paul and you know all the stuff that that ringo does um you know, Ringo is such a beautiful keeper of the legacy. I love that Ringo is like, I'm a drummer in a band. I never wanted to stand, you know, at the front of the stage and be a front man and sing my hits for half an hour. I want to be in a band. And that's right. what he's kept doing. And people made fun of him for years for doing the all-star band thing. That's like the perfect frame for what he does. That's why he's 80. He's still doing what he does as well as he ever did. He's still drumming for most of the show. And when he's not drumming, he's up on his feet dancing and he's still a phenomenal dancer. Yeah. Like, once in my entire life, I should be in as good shape as Ringo is in now. Like once in my life, I would love to be as great a dancer as he is in his eighties. Yeah. He just, you know, he loves doing it. And that's what keeps him young and excited and passionate and enthusiastic and all those things that, that make him Ringo and, and make Paul Paul and make them the Beatles that he's still got that in his eighties because, you know, he's not trying to be a front man. He's like, I want to be in a band and that's always what I wanted to do. Yeah. And they're so localized, too, because Ringo has a giant poster of, I believe it's of him and George. They're both smoking cigars in his living room. He's got, like, he's a fan. 
and uh, John, I think if you mentioned any of this to John, if if he were around today, he wouldn't believe you or he wouldn't want to believe you or he'd say some kind of joke to kind of brush it off and say, yes. no, that's that's not true. And um, same with George. I think George would have laughed at it. Yes. George even had a quote saying, like, I don't even think the Beatles were totally. that good. Yeah. He must have said that hundreds of times. And yeah. it's amazing that, like, especially, like, some... Something I'm kind of fascinated with with George is specifically his publicity tour in 1987, where he's got this new album to sell, Cloud Nine, and and he's 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 got his game face on because he realizes he's going to be talking about the Beatles all year <laughs> to sell this new album, and he's even got a song on it called When We Was Fab. So like he's a total hypocrite on that level because he's yeah. <laughs> singing about the Beatles. He's remind he's like, hey, by the way, I used to be a Beatle. Check this out. Here's my song about being a Beatle. And right. You know, but every interview, he's so sour about it. And he, he uses the word nostalgia in every single one of those interviews. And he's like, well, you know, people That's care right. about the Beatles because it reminds them of their childhood and because of nostalgia. And it's so funny that, you know, even at that point, 1987, it's like, come on, there's a whole generation that does not remember when the Beatles existed. None of us, you know, like by 1987, the world was full of kids like me, like, you know, you're probably a lot younger than I yeah. am, but like, like 1987, the the vast majority of Beatles fans already like well over half Beatles fans at that point do not have any memory of when the Beatles existed as a band that, that is completely beside the point. Nostalgia was never part of it, you know, except for the, at this point, just a, you know, just a tiny minority of Beatles fans. Cause like people, you know, it does not matter when you were born. It does not matter if you remember the sixties. I mean, I love talking to Beatles fans, who were there in the sixties and who have those stories because they remember all these things I don't know. And they, they, I, I love hearing that perspective, but it's really funny how like, that's not the last word on the Beatles. And even in 1987, when George is trying to convince himself in the world that it's just nostalgia. And even he must've known by then that it was totally wrong. But like, it just, I wanted to quote something really funny. Giles Martin said about this once when I was talking to him about the Beatles and, you know, and what keeps them, you know, kind of fascinating. We were talking about Abbey Road when they did the amazing deluxe edition of Abbey Road a few years ago. And, you know, we were talking about how, you know, I loved that record when I was a kid and kids love that album. It's a kid's album. And and he was like, there must be some kind of dark arts with the Beatles <laughs> and children. Like, and he's like, especially Abbey Road because they hear that and it just reaches them on some level. And he's like, as, you know, like a recording person, he's like studied every detail of these tracks. I can't account for it. And he's, And he said, you know, just on a personal level, he was like, you know, obviously I don't listen to the Beatles at home because I'm working at the Beatles constantly. And, you know, because, right. you know, I'm George Martin's son. We did not listen to that at home when I was growing up. Right. That was work. And, you know, and he's like, I do not listen to that at home. And, you know, his wife is like, also, it's like, she gets sick of that very quickly. They do not listen to the Beatles in their home. And he's like, they definitely do not play it for their two little kids. And he's like, my daughter, who was like eight at the time, she was like, daddy, check this out. Check out my my favorite song. This is gonna blow your mind. This is the greatest song. And he played and she played for him, come together. And like <laughs> and Giles said, he said, Me and my wife, we looked at each other and we both said simultaneously, she did not hear this from me. <laughs> but he was like, Where did she get this? He's like, We were actually actively trying to hide the Beatles from her. He said, That was our main goal as parents. We wanted to delay as long as possible her finding out the Beatles existed because we didn't want to hear this in our house. And, and, you know, but it just got to her. The Beatles just get to people. And, you know, and they get to people who, you know, a lot of people, like particularly like my generation, a lot of my Gen X 
generation, like people uh, had a really sort of um, contemptuous attitude about the Beatles growing up because the Beatles were like uh, uh, the mainstream. And, you know, so for a lot of my generation, people were sort of like defining themselves against the Beatles. That sort mm -hmm. of like Steve Albini, Michael Stipe kind of like line on the Beatles that, you know, they were just another pop group. And, you know, which is you know, fine. Like a lot of people did great work by sort of clearing that psychic space for themselves. But it's funny that for the, um, you know, I, something I definitely see in a lot of friends my age who have kids and their kids get into the Beatles. And at first they're like, huh, how is this happening? Because I wanted to get my kids into, you know, Sonny Rollins or, you know, the Velvet Underground or, you know, like whatever esoteric stuff they're into. You know, they're like right. hipster parents and they're like, how come my little kid heard, you know, you can't do that, or here comes the sun, or yellow submarine, and their life completely changed, and that's what they wanted to hear all day. And yeah. it's really weird how, you know, like, they just, that seems to be a universal fact in parenting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I have a story that's, that's really interesting. I used to be a preschool teacher when I was in college part-time. So when I was teaching this one class, um, I wore a uh, Beatles t-shirt. So it was the let it be square with all four of their faces on it. And I just, you know, it was to me, it's just a T-shirt. It's something that I, you know, like to show off to people. But I never expected um, what happened. And when I walked in the room, all of the kids, four years old, three years old, they ran over to me and they started asking questions about who's on my shirt. And and I was like, ah, oh, this, this is very um, otherworldly. I almost felt like it was like a... Um, the Sermon on the Mount, where I'm just kind of <laughs> preaching about these four great beings. Um, to uh, offer another story that backs up that uh, thesis of just like I don't like I don't know if there's any way to explain why the Beatles are so magnetic to the younger generation, especially Abbey Road and um, just I guess that just their faces are are interesting too. I don't know. It's weird. Every aspect of that person. Also, the whole thing of like a bit like four friends who are like hanging out and like they sum up all these personality extremes just in the bond between those four friends. Yeah. It's weird when you think like that the friendship of, you know, I mean, the whole concept of friendship has been around for, you know, approximately 12,000 years. You know, like it's it's a fundamental human, a fundamental part of human existence. And that yeah. the Beatles more than anybody embody like they're they're. They're the symbol of friendship worldwide. The, you know, yes. used to be, I don't know, like the Three Musketeers or, you know, like, or something like that, it, that it would have been in, in old times. But the Beatles are the best story about friendship. And they're a story about friendship that the world keeps telling itself. The Beatles are a story about love. They're a story about, you know, artistic achievement. But they're also a story about friendship and little kids attached to that. And the whole thing of like, you know, like, whether it's the Spice Girls you know, like in the nineties or, you know, Blackpink now, or, you know, like, or, you know, like whatever kind of pop stars they're into, like the whole thing of like having a group that you hang out with that, you know, you're taking your stand against the world. The Beatles are just the all time best example of that. And it's so funny that so much of the music industry now is putting bands like that together and like finding the right combination, the right, you know, the right mix of personalities to be in a group like that together. And the Beatles just lived in the same town, the same yeah. totally nowhere town where there was no infrastructure to support, you know, like a, a music group, you know, becoming popular on any level at all. And and the fact that, you know, nobody could have designed a better Beatles 
than they did just being those kids, just those yeah. raw, authentic kids finding each other. And that, you know, the world ever since then, like every mad scientist in the music business, every Dr. Frankenstein has been in the laboratory trying to create <laughs> this perfect beast of a pop band team. And right. yet the best one ever is just, you know, these four nobodies who played together in a town just because nobody else wanted to listen to them. And yeah. it's the best story about friendship that, you know, the world has to offer. And it's just, yeah. it, it's part of what makes them permanent, but it's, you know, it, and it's something, but also like the way that they outgrew that and the way that they, um, you know, and, and the way that they became independent artists, you know, mm -hmm. like within the confines of that group, that's part of the story as well. The sad stories of how the friendships end and how, you know, the relationships go on. Um, but it's funny that, you know, like seeing in, in artists now who are solo artists, but who are, you know, the world's most popular solo artists, like somebody like Drake or Taylor Swift or Harry Styles or Beyonce, that they're very much, you know, operating with the language sort of that the Beatles left behind for like a pop star to use. So they're mm -hmm. always sort of, you know, the way they all, all these artists that they plant secret hints, secret stories about stories that they have the songs comment on each other, you know, across different albums, that they're even commenting on each other's songs, you know, across the mm -hmm. years. So like, you know, like Taylor Swift has songs commenting on Drake songs or commenting on yeah. Harry Styles songs. And like this crazy back and forth dialogue, like that the artists are having like between characters on their songs and like all this stuff that the Beatles invented and that this is still how, you know, the world's biggest pop stars, this is still the perfect language, you know, to, to, to use to you know to to enhance their art and to express their 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 vision and it's funny that even like you know the album era as the kids put it now you know and my day was an yeah. album cycle you know now now it's an album era and, right you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's you know like the whole sort of artistic stance and poise that the album stands for and it's funny yeah. that like that's that's what every pop star does now every album has to be an era and like that's that's something that the Beatles invented with like, yeah. you know, Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper. Each album was like, you know, a, a reaction against the next one and a step beyond the next one. And that, you know, that these were called concept albums. And like, this is now just like the way the, <clears throat> the way all pop stars operate, you know, like yeah. nobody wants just a hit single. Nobody wants that. Even in our time now where it's like streaming, ah, like streaming, everything's about like these fractured tracks. Artists, they want albums and they want each album to be an era. It, they're yeah. still like aspiring to this Beatles standard. I I would even go as far as saying that maybe that's why the Beatles are still around today because they created these universes, kind of like totally. Harry Potter has, you know, characters in it. Um, it has uh, its own spells that aren't that don't exist inside the Marvel universe. I think the Beatles have their own universe as well and maybe that's what other artists are i know taylor swift definitely does you know she has betty she has james and absolutely yes and that you know and, and the chimp are obsessed with numbers in the same way they did that great like um interview like when they did a cover story of rolling stone a couple of years ago artists on yes. artists and it was paul and taylor interviewing each other it was somebody that the first half of their conversation was about numerology because she was like you just did mccartney three in 2020 Whereas you did McCartney 2 in 1980 and McCartney 1 in 1970 and like, you're just numbers. And he's like, well, you're the one who's like, you know, got 13 letters and everything. And like, yeah. it's so funny that like, 
Yep. They are so exactly the same personality in so yeah. many ways. Like they are so much more like each other than either of them is like anybody else. Um, right. And it's 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 so funny how like that sort of you know style of being a pop star that the Beatles invented. But it it it's so funny that this is you know like you said they they create universes. As, as I, I always love the quote from Raekwon of the Wu Tang Clan, like the ultimate yes. like '90s group in terms of like like a, that a group creating its own fictional universe where you have to learn all the different languages just to even figure out what's going on from record to record, and. And Raekwon said, you know, the Beatles are timeless dudes doing timeless things. And that we're the Black Beatles. He's like, you can call me Chef McCartney because I'm just like the Paul of our group. And wow. Did he really say that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's like, That's of awesome. course, like the Wu-Tang Clan, you know, like, of course, like that Beatles, you know, like, and these are, you know, like guys on Staten Island who are yeah. like, you know, from like the hardest part of the hood and they're obsessed with Kung Fu movies and, you know, arcane religious symbolism. And like they're doing this all like, and you know the Beatles are their model, and like Ghostface has his solo album, and Raekwon has his solo album, and you know Genius has his, but they're all appearing on each other's albums and sort of like commenting on like, and just like all these codes that you learn as you go deeper into this world. Yeah, and as as Raekwon said, like timeless dudes doing timeless things. But like I, I love how like like the Wu Tang Clan did their version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps with yes. on guitar. Basin, a raisin in the sun was amazing the join on the yeah, dress. Like, I love that. It's perfect because like they, you know, they took this aspect of the Beatles really further than anybody. But BTS does the same thing. You have to listen to all, you know, BTS, the world's biggest pop group, like from Korea and like people who haven't listened to them, especially in this country, especially if they're stuck on the thing of only English language pop, but like, right. you know, they, they, probably assume that bts are just doing like bubblegummy dance hits i'm like no actually these guys do concept albums about nietzsche and about carl Jung, and you have right. to like study the lyrics and the way that they sing on each other's songs and what they're saying and the dialogues that are going from album to album to even fully get a sense of what they're they're doing it's like these bands are really you know going going to the ultimate extreme with what the beatles invented you know, I haven't listened to BTS, but now that you mentioned that, I'm actually kind of intrigued. I might give a, a dive into their catalog. Yeah, it's, it's it's funny that like people like you know like they they look at them and they assume what they do from like what you know the way they look and the way they dance. And I'm like, mm -hmm. no, like these albums are like incomprehensible. You have to spend time on them, and there's so much going on, and it gets more fascinating. Like the more, but they create these like you know your comparison to Harry Potter is like dead on. Like like for Harry Potter to work, it has to have symbols and codes that aren't in the marvel universe and marvel has to have stuff that's not in star wars like they have right. to like have their own private stuff for it to compute but the beatles like they're on that level in terms of myth making and, and that they really like invented the way everybody does this now yeah i would have loved to see what um world they would have created on that greek island too <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> i think paul would have been the first one to bail yeah, <laughs> I think I think Ringo might have stuck stuck it out longer than than Paul did, but you could tell like they they tried that you know in India like which really you know yeah. worked for like you know the songs they wrote in India were so good that you're like wow they should have done that every now and then you know just like yeah, but but also that they you know that they all stayed music fans and that's that that's something I think they would have missed on their Greek island because you know and that's something that they mm -hmm. still have in common you know like. uh Paul and Ringo are just like huge fans. They're they're always listening to stuff that's new as well as and stuff that's outside their world as well as you know. But they're not they're not just like sitting around listening to you know the records they grew up with. Yeah, 
I think in I think a couple years ago Ringo Starr said one of his favorite songs of all time is "You Belong with Me" by Taylor Swift, and that's that. insane. I love it's that. It's so cool. I love that. I love when when Billie Eilish a couple years ago won the Grammy for Best New Artist, like and she yeah. she went actually for Album of the Year, and Ringo was giving out that award. It was so sweet when Billie and her brother Phineas like they walk up to the stage and like they they do this you know like bowing down like. And to Ringo and Ringo's just well done, Billy. And he's like, yeah, he, he's so proud of her. And he gives her a big hug. And like, and I was interviewing him about that last year. I was like, it's like really funny how, you know, like, you know, you bond with these artists, you know, who like are, are so young, but they look up to you as, you know, their model for what they want to do artistically. And, and, you know, like it, it must be really wild for them that you even know who they are. And he's like, well, I love Miley and I love Billy. He's like, I always love the little rebels, you know? Yeah. It's so great. Uh, I got to tell you a Ringo Zoom story just because I'm seeing a Dylan poster behind you. Yes, so, absolutely. Uh, I, I've done a couple of Zoom interviews with Ringo. He's he's a scream to interview. I, phone interviews with Ringo were really different from Zoom interviews because like he his personality is just much better suited. He really enjoys a Zoom. Yeah. Um, he's you know he's 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 got more of an audience. Like and uh, and the first time I made sure I hid everything. Like that was visible in my office that had that was Beatle related at all because like I didn't <laughs> want to seem like I was being that guy, so right. I hid everything. And uh, after the conversation, like he's like, eh, "I see Bob on your wall. Is that Bob?" And like I, I had a Dylan album behind me. I had like Blonde on Blonde on my shelves. And I was like, "Yes." And he was like, "Oh, he's like, I didn't see anything of mine on your walls." <laughs> I was like, uh, that's because I hit it all on the floor, Ringo. They didn't want you. Here, I'll show you my Bocuse of Blues LP that I've got sitting right next to the deck because I put it all on the floor. So you wouldn't freak out when you saw it. But if you want to see this. Your bed sheets must have been like looking like a mountain or something. Yes, it was like scattered all over. I was like, yeah, here's yeah. Here, here's like here's here's here's. Here's my eight track tape of the blue album, you know, that's like, fantastic. <laughs> it, it, but but it, it was just that thing of like, you know, he's used to seeing Ringo-ness everywhere. He doesn't, you know, it's not like it doesn't seem like contrived or put on to him. And it doesn't seem sycophantic to him. He's just used to living in a world that has the Beatles in it and that he and Paul have become such big Beatles fans and that they've you know sh shared that fandom with the world, which even like as recently as anthology, they weren't fully capable of doing emotionally. They were still kind of, you know, weirded out by the popularity of the Beatles. So speaking about the popularity of the Beatles, a hundred years from now, are they going to be as popular as they once were and as they are now? Be sure to tune in next week for Rob's answer to that question. Thank you all for listening to part two of this wonderful conversation we've been having with Rob Sheffield. If you like the show and you're eager to see more, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Beatles Earth. Follow Rob on Twitter as well. And we'll see you next week.